In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. So wonderful to be with you, and especially during this season. Uh, this is the beginning of the Coptic year. And if you notice the hymnology in today's liturgy, it was all joyous. And the reason is that it is a time for rejoicing. Um, new, new things are always good. You know, the feeling of getting that new phone out of the box. The smell of that new car, um, the start of a new year, where you can do things that are different, where you can wipe things out and you can say, okay, everything I did last year was was done, it's gone over now, and now I'm starting something fresh. It's like I always say it with me, I like to scribble. I like to when I'm on the phone, I'll scribble and I write things. Uh, when I write things, I remember them more. And there's, there's no nicer feeling than starting on a fresh new page. Because then you can actually write something, and if you make a mistake, you cross it out and you want to start a new page again. But the beauty of our lives is you can start a new page every day. You don't need to wait for the new year, whether it's the, whether it's, it, it's the, it's the, you know, the Western New Year or the, or the Coptic New Year, or it's a calendar year or an ecclesial year. It doesn't matter. New beginnings are always new beginnings. And so they are a time for joy. And today we want to speak a little bit about joy and what joy means. Now, joy means lots of different things to lots of different people. And that's why the feeling of joy comes and goes. And that's why joy is often a very real experience, something we actually experience and live and cherish and value and sometimes it's something that feels so distant that we can't even think about it and we look around us almost in disbelief that some people are joyful why are you happy how can you be happy and a number of times i've been asked that question by people saying how can people be happy in this world look look at look at the suffering look at the injustice Look at the pain. Look at the struggles. And over, over these past two years almost, we've experienced that in a way that we've never experienced it before. You know, no one in living history has experienced what we have experienced over the past year and a half or two years. You know, we've heard about things like the Spanish flu and the plague, you know, generations ago. But no one alive today, even in the depths of the First World War and Second World War, experienced something that affected the whole world in this way. And so when you look at this struggle, you think, well, how can you feel joy? And yet we do. Coming together today gives us joy. And I can see it in your faces. The fact that we haven't been together for so long and now we can spend time and just chat over brunch. We can just chat in a corridor. These are things you you can't do on Teams calls and Zoom calls. But we can now do them. And the small things are starting to give us joy. The things that we took for granted before. Yeah, you know, church is so boring. I don't want to go. They're the same people all the time. You know, I was there last week. Or even family. You know, extended family. and, and, And people who 
who mean something to us, who are near and dear, we've been deprived of, but now we can actually experience. Sometimes immediate family, maybe it was too much exposure. Maybe that could be different, you know, parents and their kids, kids and their parents, siblings with each other. There could have been a little bit of overexposure. That's a different issue. But we also learned how to live with each other and how to experience and appreciate each other. So it's given us a new angle on joy. What is it that gives us joy? I want us to reflect on the Gospel of St. John, chapter 16. Um, in verse 16, our Lord says, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Our Lord is starting to prepare them. I've been with you for these three years. Um, I've prepared you. I've been with you. I've mentored you. And now I need to leave you to do what you need to do. You were never called just to hold on to my apron strings for the rest of your lives and the rest of your ministry. In actual fact, you were called, you have been called, you are still called to witness to the whole world. And you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Witness to teach people what I have taught you. Give them that message. But you can't do that until I leave you. And so he starts to prepare them for the fact that they are going to be left. But then we come to verse 21. It speaks about a woman when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of a person, a new person born into the world. And then our Lord says this, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. How many times have we read that verse? Numerous times, right? This is one of the most read verses in, in the New Testament. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, your hearts will rejoice. Read the meaning of the words and see what that means. It means that when you can no longer see me, you will have sorrow. But when you do see me, your hearts will rejoice. Now I'm wondering how many of us have their joy and sorrow connected to seeing our Lord or being with our Lord. Is that really what brings us joy and sorrow? When we think about our lives, at a time when I am not feeling the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, does that give me sorrow? Or does not having material wealth or not having friends, or do those things bring me sorrow? Now those things are important, to have fellowship and friends and family, and possessions, they're all part of life. I'm not demonizing them in any way. I'm not, I'm not belittling that. It's important for us to have all of those things. But I think the measure has been so skewed that now these things are the main measure of our joy and our sorrow. And 
our Lord Jesus Christ being in our lives, God being in our lives, is sort of an additional extra, if and when it comes, it's a good thing. And especially at times when we need him. You know, think about sickness, ourselves or, or, or others. Um, things we need, um, studies, exams, job interviews, uh, opportunities, finding a life partner, finding stability, wealth, all of those things. We tie him into the fulfillment of those things. He is so much more than that. He is so much more than that. He is so much more than a glorified Santa Claus for adults. You know, God is not just a service provider. He doesn't just give us things, and when he doesn't give us things, he no longer has a purpose. He is the source of our joy and our life. I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. I'm wondering for us, does seeing God make our hearts rejoice? Or is it a reminder of guilt? And so therefore our hearts don't rejoice. Sometimes people say, you know, I can't go to church because it reminds me of the bad things I've done. Well, okay, that's a good thing because you have that element of guilt. And you know what? Guilt is not always a bad thing. But guilt is only good insofar as it fulfills a purpose. Guilt is only good for waking us up. But it is not good as a consistent experience. As a consistent experience, it becomes at best neutralized and ignored. At worst, makes us feel incredibly bad about ourselves without a way out. Guilt for me, and I've, I've said this before, is like a fire alarm, smoke detector in this room. You have a smoke detector here, it senses smoke. And what happens? It'll go off. The alarm will go off. Now, if the alarm goes off, it is meant to tell you there is a problem. There may be a fire. There's a risk. Get out. And get someone to extinguish the fire. So when you hear the alarm, you are supposed to leave the room for your own safety and then find a solution to the problem. But if the alarm keeps going and just keeps ringing, at best you will drown it out and forget about it. At worst, it deafens you so you don't hear it anymore. I must make a confession. There is one one parish that I go to where every time I go into the office after the surgery, and this has been happening probably for about five or six years, there is this annoying beep out of something in the office. Right? Something. You go in there and it's beeping. And it drives me absolutely crazy. And so I've spoken to people and said, well, what is that beep? It's a, it's, it's a warning light on some of one of the devices. So you get it fixed. A, because if there's a warning light, that means something is wrong. B, it is annoying the life out of me. Get it fixed. But the thing is, I only go there every couple of months. It annoys me. But people who are there just don't hear it anymore. 
You just don't hear it anymore. You walk in and you can see this beep that goes off, you don't hear it anymore. It's very much, very much like um, parents who have young children, right? And kids, really sorry, no offense, no offense intended, but but you come into church, right? And you're attending liturgies, and sometimes you hear a child. I'm talking, not talking about an infant who has no control making noises. That's normal. But a child, a toddler who is making an annoying noise. And people sit around and think, why are you, can't you hear it? The answer is actually no. Parents don't hear it anymore. For their own sanity, they have been desensitized. Right? Parents are all looking at each other and smiling, yes? For their own sanity, <laughs> for their own sanity, they have been desensitized. They don't hear it anymore. You know, so sometimes for our perceived sanity, we desensitize ourselves from hearing our consciences. So coming into the church and feeling bad about something, if you don't do something about it, either what it does is it says, no, sorry, I can't walk into this place where there's this constant siren that drives me nuts and makes me feel bad, or you come in and you just don't hear it anymore. That is not what guilt is for. Guilt is that alarm that says to you, something is wrong, fix it. And the fix it bit is repentance and confession. And the Eucharist. <clears throat> so we have a warning, a warning system, and we have the means by which to address it and to fix it. But again, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And I just want us to focus on that. Was our Lord being naive? Did he really think that just by seeing him they would rejoice? Of course he wasn't naive. Now, you and I have people in our lives who really make us happy when we see them. You know, you, you, you hear about people, you know, people you love who you walk in, they walk into a room, they light up the room. Or who infuse this joy. People you look at and, you know, I've, one of my priests, lovely man, very good friend, um, has just become a grandfather. And he is absolutely smitten. I mean, all he needs to do is, and I can tell, if he looks at his phone, he has this certain expression that comes on his face, and I know that someone has sent him a video of his grandson. And that, that, that just, it, it's, it's, it's in, it is incredibly sweet, totally involuntary. You know, it, it doesn't matter where he is, it doesn't matter what he's doing, you can see it. You know, and, and there are people who give you that joy. There are people in your life who will give you that joy. When you see them, you feel joy. And when you no longer see them, you feel saddened. Is God one of those people? Because he is a person. He's real. This is not some fictitious, mythical character. God is real in our lives. He is not the image of guilt. He is not the great judge alone. All of those things, yes, there are elements of them. 
But that's why when, when he decided to come to save us, he took the form of man, he became the incarnate word, so we could relate to him. So we could engage with him. So that he wasn't just a mythical character. You know, in, in, our, in our doctrine, when you look at any Coptic icon, you will never see God, the Father, depicted. Because the scriptures tell us that no one has seen God. We don't know what God looks like. He's not the old guy with the big beard. That, that's not God. That's just not him. God is spirit, and we haven't seen him. But he didn't want us to be shaken and unsure of who he was. And so he said, fine, I will give you something you can relate to. Here I am. So now when you see an icon of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can relate to the features When you hear of his experiences and read of them, you can relate to those experiences. When you want to love and interact and have a relationship, you have someone you can direct that at. And that's important for us. But does his presence in our lives give us joy and does his absence bring us sorrow? That's what we need to determine. Therefore, now you have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. Now, I want to read this again. Listen to it. This is Gospel of St. John, chapter 16, verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. There are two massively important words in that verse that I'm sure if I were to ask you, you would not pick up. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. In my mind, you know what the two most significant words in that verse are? One word repeated. And. Now, who would ever give an importance to a word and? We have and all the time. Ands are replaced by commas. Who cares about and? But I'll tell you why they're important. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. Which means that our heart rejoicing is built on the seeing him again. It's not just hearts rejoicing for any other reason. It is directly linked to seeing him again. Now, there are other things that will give us joy. There are other things, I'm sure, that give you joy. But one of the things that must give you joy is seeing him in your life or seeing him in the lives of others. Now, why do we, in our churches, every liturgy, why do we... Give the account of the saint of the day. Why do we read the scriptures? It's because in them they see the work. Of, in them we see the work of God. And when we see the work of God, it gives us joy. It gives us hope. You know, if it, if God 
can work through him or her, then he can certainly work through me. If God can shine through him or her, then he can shine through me. If God can change him or her, then he can change me, and so on and so forth. That's the importance. So I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Directly connected. We see it in the lives of others. We see him in our own lives. Lord, I'm going to reflect here, and I want to think. When I see you in my life, manifest in my life, in my kindness, in my love, in my forgiveness, in my graciousness, in all of those things, does that give me joy? And that's a question that only can be answered by each and every one of you internally. Does that give us joy? Does he give us joy? I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. Now the second and, which is exactly the same word, I think is even more important. And your joy no one will take from you. Which means that this joy that is built on him cannot be taken by anything or anyone else. Nothing. Persecution. Tribulation. Nothing. Why is it that the saints were able to go to their death rejoicing? Why did the Christians of the first church drive the authorities insane? Because they would go into the Colosseum singing hymns of joy. How can you be going to your death and rejoicing? Well, because he's here. I see him. And his presence brings me joy. And that joy you cannot take from me. That joy is mine from him. And that's it. When we make our joy conditional on things that can be taken, then that joy is quite frivolous. It's weak. That joy becomes conditional. That's why when you see people who link their joy to relationship, person, job, career, identity, again, those are all important things. But when your joy is linked to that and that alone, it's conditional. But when you link that joy to something that can never be taken from you, can never be extracted, it is unconditional, it is unwavering, it is unending. It's mine and mine alone. It's very much like my image and likeness within me, the image and likeness of God, the nature of who I am. That can't be taken away from me. It's like the Holy Spirit who is in me, who we receive in chrismation. That can't be taken away from me. There are certain parts of me that are so deeply encapsulated in me and who I am that they cannot be taken away. And it is those things that we must hold dear. It is those things 
that are essential and critical to our nature. Because when we hold on to them, no one takes away our joy. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how incredibly proud I am of our church and of our heritage. And this is not me flying the Coptic flag, believe me, because I, I see negative and I try to fix it. This is not, be, not me being tunnel visioned. Proud of one thing, that although we have lived persecution, we have lived struggles, we have lived martyrdom, you know, and this, this Nehru's feast hinges on the concept of martyrdom. We've never defined ourselves ourselves through the martyrdom. We have defined ourselves through the courage of the martyrs. We don't say, oh, woe is us, we got martyred, uh, we're victims, look what happened to us, we're a sob story. We're not. We've said, you know, Diocletian came, presented the worst wave of martyrdom to us as a church. You know what? We're going to start our Coptic calendar from the beginning of the reign of Diocletian. Not because we feel sorry for ourselves, because we feel that that is part of who we are. And the joy of the presence of God in our lives is instrumental to who we are. And no one can take it away from us. And so this is who we are. This should not make us, please understand me, this should not make us feel better than anyone else. It should not make us feel more privileged or more entitled because those in themselves are very unchristian thoughts to have. So that's not what we're trying to do here. What I'm saying though is understand the things that you have within you that no one can take away and the things that no one can deprive you of. Your identity, your heritage, your tradition, your joy. Those things are incredibly important and no one can take them away from you because they rest on how we define ourselves. So I'm wondering, as you leave today, how much the word and is going to echo in your minds from now on. Every time you use the word and, in any context, I want you to remember that there is a cause and an effect. The cause is that we see him again. The effect is that we have joy. The cause is we have joy in him. The effect is that no one can take that joy from us, ever. Over this past year, we've seen, over this past two years actually, we've seen so much happen. We've seen the church being the church. We've seen good work. We've seen work in the community. We've seen witness. We have seen Christian kindness and generosity. We've seen all of that play out and become visible and become evident. 
Because for us, all we are doing is demonstrating the love of God and the joy we have in our hearts. Be one of those people who walks into the room and lights up the room. Besides your own personal charisma, of course, and I know you all have that. But because you reflect the light of Christ as you walk into that room. But because people see you and they take a breath. You know, sometimes people walk into a room and they create anxiety. Has anyone experienced one of those people? You know, think of just people who come in to do an inspection, right? People come in to assess you. The minute you walk into the room, you feel anxiety. But there are people who walk into the room and allow you to breathe because suddenly in their person, in their presence, there is a safe space. Be a person who brings that into people's lives because people need it. People need us to be a source of calm, to be a source of peace, to be a source of hope. The world sucks the life out of us sometimes. We lose our breath. We cannot breathe a breath of hope or joy or promise because we feel like it's a burden on us. But if we're able to rejoice in him, to have that joy in him, it is contagious. Just as anxiety and fear and chaos are contagious, you know, have someone walk into this room and suddenly say, ah, there's something wrong. People become frantic. It's contagious. But if someone is soft-spoken and says, just relax, just be still, there is joy. That is just as contagious. But even more uplifting, more defining of who we are. So today, let us always look to see him. And when he comes in, experience that joy. And when we experience that joy, know for a fact, unconditionally, without exception, that no one can take that joy from us. And glory be to God. Thank you.